This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. Today I'm joined by Dr Jenna McWilliam, the Head of Organisational Development at Triple P International. Jenna is an organisational psychologist with extensive international experience and a strong focus on enhancing social impact for children, families and communities through the implementation and scale-up actually on a global scale, of evidence-based programs. It's great to have you here today, Jenna. Thanks, Matt, for having me on the program. This is a little different today because what we've got is the unique opportunity to explore some really fundamental issues about how developers of evidence-based programs and researchers can work together with implementation and dissemination organisations who are seeking to share those evidence-based practices with the professional community and with the general public. And we're in a situation today where myself as developer and founder of a particular program known as the Triple P Positive Parenting Program, and Jenna, who works for Triple P International in her role as disseminator of this program, can share some complementary but different perspectives about what we need to do in an environment of crisis that has arisen through the coronavirus because there was no roadmap here, there was no guidance about exactly how we should be tackling this. And most importantly, how do you adapt and change evidence-based set of practices to be relevant in an environment where families are experiencing just tremendous difficulties as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I thought we might start, Jenna, just to reflect a moment on some of the things that we've noticed about the concerns that parents have, the impact of this on families. What, what are your initial thoughts about that? I think the job of parenting during COVID, like a lot of things, has become more difficult than it was before. Shifts in how we work, in education, in social environments, in anxiety, depending on where we are about contracting COVID-19 mm-hmm. or anxiety about other family members getting sick, has really increased stresses on, on families and on everyone. And the disruption and the economic impacts that have followed present an immense challenge for families trying to adjust and adjust for what really is an uncertain period of time. And that kind of like also in an unknowable future, isn't it? Exactly. It's just there's been no kind of playbook that, that you could say this is the guide that families need to be following because with things changing all the time, this has probably been a huge source of anxiety for both parents and kids, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we're very concerned about is without additional support in dealing with these additional stresses that there will be, and we're already seeing increases in mental health challenges, increase in challenging behaviours in the family and also the potential for family violence. And there's an increased challenge and risk for all families because everyone's experiencing this. But that risk and those challenges are heightened for those families that are already vulnerable and already at risk. 
It's been interesting just to reflect about how families are presenting to services and to programs such as Triple P. I wonder if you'd share some of your observations about the type of difficulties and their severity that are, are now presenting to practitioners and, and, and services that are offering evidence-based programs like Triple P. One thing we've found, we've looked at the data that we have available to us through Triple P Online, the online mm-hmm. parenting program, and it's been really interesting. So in Queensland, for example, we've looked at the data of parents accessing the program before COVID hit mm-hmm. and once COVID hit. One thing that we've been really encouraged by is there's been a 55% increase in families seeking support through Triple P Online. So even during a time when there were perhaps restrictions to in-person services, we're still seeing parents seeking support, which is great. One thing we're also seeing is that all families are seeking additional support and particularly those vulnerable families. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, we had saw an increase of 231% of those families accessing Triple P online after COVID. So massive increases. What we are also seeing, unfortunately, but I think not surprisingly, given the situation that we're all in, is parents doing Triple P online are reporting more child behavioural and emotional problems than they were before. They're also reporting more severe parental depression and stress and reporting using more unhelpful parenting practices. So we're now seeing within Queensland alone, seven in 10 parents now scoring in a range that suggests a need for clinical support. Well, I find that fascinating because, you know, when you think about it in an environment where there's just a huge amount of extra stress there, the fact that parents are reaching out to an online way of delivering programs I think is reflective of the fact that not only were in-person services more difficult to access but there's something about when a population perspective is taken around evidence-based parenting support it's normalizing and destigmatizing the whole idea of accessing support. Do you, do you feel that's been an important element in this increase in demand? Absolutely and I think the other thing that's that's probably happening is parents are now seeking support who never would have sought support before so they're not already connected with existing services and so they're seeing being able to access a program online as an easy non-stigmatizing way of, of seeking support. And of course the challenge in that I guess agencies and services are concerned about is that they have a role in providing in-person services and and parents are seeking independent of those practitioners at times access to online programs that have been shown to be effective. And the challenge for both ways that parents are engaging is for the parents who put up their hand and say, I want to be involved, for them to do enough of the intervention so they derive benefit. Because there's one thing to put up your hand to want to participate. It's an entirely different issue to do enough of it that you derive benefit. And I think the important thing here is to recognise that there is a a massive evolving evidence base around the effectiveness of online programs with or without practitioner support. That's right. And I think it's also about giving parents access and choice. So they Mm -hmm. have access to different types of support and they can choose what is going to work best for them and their family at the time. Let's just reflect now for a moment about the things you've noticed in terms of practitioners and agencies and how they've been impacted on this. And, And 
What have been the issues that you as a dissemination organisation have really had to deal with in terms of responding to clearly identified need because they're contacting you as a service, as a, as a provider of training and implementation support? What have they been saying? I think there's probably two major themes that we're seeing. One is that practitioners and agencies are really struggling at the moment. They're struggling, they're having to shift how they deliver services to families to be able to keep those families engaged during periods of lockdown or restrictions around social distancing but they're also having to do that and so keep keep supporting families who are have increased levels of vulnerability mm-hmm. they're having to change how they deliver their work so they're going through a massive organizational change and at the same time as doing those two things they're also themselves they and their families are in the experience yeah. um, of the families that they're trying to help so they're also struggling and vulnerable and have their own family issues that they're having to work through. So it's been a really challenging time for organisations is, and Isn't it interesting, though, that you think about the practitioner trying to support parents and children, but the practitioners themselves not only need support with some of the tools that they require to support the parents, to support the kids, but they themselves, many of whom are parents, and they're right in the midst of it themselves. I'm curious, when, when we start to think about, and in the early days of the pandemic, the whole question we confronted, both as a developer and a researcher group, and also as a dissemination organisation, the whole issue was, well, what kind of additional things do we need to develop? And we developed these together, didn't we? So that let's just think about that process and what are the main things you would point to as the kind of tools that had to be developed to support the practitioners? So one of the things we did quite early on was really try and engage with and consult with organisations mm-hmm. and practitioners to really, instead of trying to predict what they needed, ask them what they yeah. needed. And one of the big things that we found was that they wanted COVID-specific resources and tools that they could share with their parents. They also wanted help to be able to continue delivering support. So a lot of them moved quite quickly to trying to figure out how to provide support over the phone or Mm -hmm. via video conference. But then they weren't quite sure how to adapt, say, their delivery of a group program to be able to deliver that via video conference while still maintaining the fidelity of the program. While many of them had had no prior experience exactly. in uh, video conferencing yep. or Zoom, breakout rooms and all of this That's kind right. of stuff at all. Yeah. So the thing that struck me is that in those early days when there was uncertainty about how we should respond, there was no doubt we had to respond. Absolutely. And that there was an absolute imperative that both as a developer of the program and as the disseminator, we had to work out a way of responding nimbly Mm -hmm. and quickly with no specific funding allocation to these tasks Mm -hmm. and to make these resources as much as they could possibly be made widely accessible to as many people as possible. When you think about the complementary ways that we kind of work together. We didn't always agree about everything that was to be done, but there was no doubt in my mind that we were one in terms of the need to do something. Absolutely. And I think that it was such a good example of how we worked together developing those parenting guides and the top 10 tips. So I think it started with feedback from somebody in France saying, Mm -hmm. we need need the top tips, what do we do? 
we got that feedback we passed it on to you very quickly you had developed the top 10 tips yeah it came back to us we shared that with some key personnel in our offices to check for any sort of clinical or implementation needs that we needed to review it on and but country also, differences and yeah and also country differences and then very quickly they were tailored for each country translated in multiple languages and released on on our website on your website through social media yeah. and we got that out really quickly we did and also from the university perspective we had the support of multiple groups within the university, including the Life Course Centre, around developing a podcast series for this and the parenting in a pandemic. And from the moment we made the decision to do something like this, it was about three weeks before the first episode was broadcast. And the, the, there were 20 of them that were part of that series. And the thing that struck me about this whole process is that here we're taking a theoretical model, a set of strategies and principles around helping kids with anxiety, helping families cope with uh, change and transition and sometimes loss and a whole bunch of mental health problems. And there was no existing roadmap about how to do this. There was no well-developed theory if you just apply it and here, here we've got it. We had to go back to basic principles and we had to, the thing that I like about what you're saying is that process of end user engagement, the voices of parents, of kids and of practitioners, and as the implementation organisation, you're harvesting that knowledge and sharing it back with the developer and the researcher at the university and we're co-constructing a response. That was pretty cool, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And I think that process of of co-design mm. at such a large scale yeah. was pretty amazing. But also for us to know that while this was an entirely new situation, so of course there was no COVID-specific program or system that had been designed and evidenced, mm -hmm. because we knew it was based and grounded so strongly in the principles of Triple P and fit within existing elements of the Triple P system, we could be assured that when we deployed that very quickly to practitioners and parents, that it would have a positive impact. But it doesn't stop there because there's still a need to evaluate what's Absolutely. been done. And so if you think about the process of the bi-directional and reciprocal exchange of data and evidence about what works for whom and when and under what circumstances, it's never a process, in my view, where you've got the developers and researchers in these academic institutions or clinical research environments just developing something. In fact, to evolve an evidence-based practice, to have it truly responsive to need, we talk about evidence-based practice, but this is practice-based evidence That's right. at every level. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about training. And you think about the whole way in which we had to adapt and change almost instantly to another way of delivering professional training. Yes, yeah, so in February 2020, if you asked me how we delivered practitioner training at Triple P International, I would have said we deliver it in person. If you'd asked for it to be online or via video conference, I would have said no, it's not possible. And I think the pandemic was declared by the WHO in sort of the start or the middle of March, and within a week we had run our first training via Zoom. <laughs> so, oh, what a difference a couple of weeks makes. And not to do that would have meant what? Well, it would have meant 
we could not have provided practitioner training around the world. The lockdowns, the travel restrictions, it would have been impossible. And we were hearing from agencies around the world that they still needed the training. They still had families they needed to support. They had projects they needed to finish. So it wasn't an option to just stop. So we were, I think, very fortunate, along with a lot of other people, to realise some of the benefits of the functionality of Zoom, particularly that breakout group function, which meant that we could really replicate the in-person training experience via video conference. Well, running the role plays and having the the trainer jump into different breakout rooms and to be an observer and to provide feedback, those basic functions that you would do in an in-person training could be simulated pretty well not completely but pretty well I think the most important thing is the recent data is showing what yeah so we've recently done an analysis of all of the practitioners who've completed training via zoom and compared them with a similar group who'd gone through in-person training and found no substantial differences in skill acquisition or satisfaction with the training process. I think that's a real testimony to the quality of the professional training that's been provided in this dissemination environment and that I particularly like the fact that not only is it needing to be done but it's constantly being checked about whether it's working and If you think about it from a quality assurance and quality maintenance perspective, a huge risk for the deployment of an evidence-based program is to have an erosion of quality for, for a high quality program by going online. Absolutely. One of the things we were quite worried about from an implementation perspective was the shift for agencies in how they prepared and how they prepared their practitioners ahead of training. And so we were quite concerned that that would result in issues either during the training or following. We provided a lot of additional implementation support to those agencies to make sure they and their practitioners were prepared before training. So that was, while I was very happy to see all of the results from the Zoom training analysis, I was particularly pleased to see no substantial difference in how informed and prepared practitioners felt ahead of training, which is pretty amazing considering the majority of the practitioners that we've trained since March were being trained under pandemic conditions. Yes. And of course, one of the crucial research questions about the effects of training, even if it's extremely high quality, is that this doesn't necessarily translate immediately into successful deployment or implementation with fidelity of an evidence-based practice. It can build people's capability and sense of confidence. But, you know, one of the learnings Uh, perhaps you you could reflect upon is how crucial do you think implementation support is and the application of implementation science to ensure sustained benefit of any investment in training of professionals? Well, as an implementation scientist, absolutely critical. I really don't think there is a lot of point in training anyone, training practitioners, if you don't have sound implementation practices in place beforehand or you can't get them in place quickly afterwards. And if you don't have them in place, what happens? Nothing. That's right. People don't <laughs> implement the program. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. And then it's a wasted, wasted investment and a missed opportunity. Right. So particularly being able to during this chaotic time, work with agencies and practitioners to really 
stick with the basics around implementation despite all of the chaos that's surrounding their practice and the changes that were happening within their practice sticking to the basics of what are you trying to achieve what families are you trying to reach how will you be delivering the program to those families and then crucially how will you need to change how you deliver because of the conditions at the moment so whereas before if we were training practitioners to deliver a group we would be asking questions about well what room do you have access to a room to deliver the program how will you get the resources on time will you have biscuits available it shifted to okay so are you comfortable using video conferencing will you will you be able to share some of the video material via video conference what's the internet connectivity like for the parents that you work with so exactly the same process but slightly different content and context that we're working within you know the cynic out there would say that's all very well but more socially disadvantaged and vulnerable families are never going to be able to participate in online delivery that's not true is it well it's not true and the data that we've got through looking at Triple P online in particular shows that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not just in Queensland, we've done that analysis now in Canada, in the US and in the UK, and we're finding really similar things. So lower SES families, single income families, culturally diverse families, families who speak English as a second language are all now accessing the online program in higher levels than they were before, but also higher than their representative population within the community. I think it's important to recognise online is not an either-or scenario. It's either online or or nothing or it's in person as a way of delivering it because they're also blended models. Mm -hmm. If you think about parent preference, about how they wish to access parenting programs right at the moment in a in a pandemic it's much more difficult for people to access in-person delivery but that's going to change mm. but I think what's not going to change is that there are still many people out there who actually really enjoy telemedicine telehealth based yeah. delivery yeah, of programs right. which is not just so much doing the online independently in terms of an actual multi-module online program It's using technology and the capacity to engage in a service remotely. And the fact that people have been increasingly able to do that, and we've seen in Australia the item numbers in in Medicare and so on, be able to deliver telehealth, do you think that's here to stay? Absolutely. I think parents are now, and families, and even practitioners and funders are now a lot more comfortable with digital solutions than they were before. Parents as consumers are now more used to accessing everything through online formats. And we're now developing the infrastructure from a funding perspective and an organisational perspective around providing services through telehealth or digital interventions. And that's not going to go away. It's already been established. The experience I had recently was to run a masterclass with a very large number of practitioners in the US who had had training in this evidence-based practice. And part of the process of delivering that was to try to be as responsive to issues that practitioners themselves were raising and wanted to address to me as the founder of the program and someone who's very experienced in this area of providing parenting support. But what struck me about that experience is, one, that it was done on the other side of the world, and secondly, it was made to work with technology. So it was actually highly engaging and successful experience, and the feedback from the participating practitioners was excellent. 
And so the thing that going forward that I'm, I'm thinking is that in a digital world, there are ways of providing support and ongoing additional training and input that you just can't do if it's an in-person presence is required. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So I think one of the things we will definitely continue with after this experience is delivering training via Zoom. Mm -hmm. So our typical model of delivering training in person is great if you are an agency that has, say, 10 or 20 practitioners that need to be trained in the same program Mm -hmm. at the same time in the same location. If you don't have all of those things in place, it then means you either have to wait for a course to become available in your area or you need to pay to get to a training in another area, which adds significantly to the cost. So being able to deliver training via Zoom removes all of those barriers. Reaches more people at lower cost, which means greater population reach for a public health population-based approach to evidence-based parenting support. Isn't that what it's all about? Exactly. And so now practitioners in countries who never would have been able to access training before can because they're in the same time zone as a training that we're running in say I heard of one this morning a training we ran in Canada and there was a practitioner from Brunei and another one from Western Australia who joined the Canadian training right. at some ungodly hour of the morning but they were able to access that program and they never would have been able to before because we wouldn't have had enough practitioners in Brunei interested at this point in time to be able to fly a trainer over there to deliver the service. So the program we've been talking about and the issues that have been identified in terms of training and implementation support refer to a particular practice, but the issues that we're raising are really broader and really relate to any evidence-based parenting or intervention process. So if you think about the kind of key takeouts, if there are a couple of things that you would like program developers, researchers and implementation organisations to remember to make it as successful as possible, what do you reckon? I think for us, one of the most important things that we did was take an implementation perspective mm-hmm. in our approach. So while we knew we had to rush and we needed to act quickly, We also needed to stay true to our values as an organisation of promoting high quality evidence-based support, getting programs out to families and doing so in a way that maintains the, the integrity of the program. So taking a fast but planned approach and strategic approach to our response was really important and key to that was talking to people so not going it alone not thinking we knew from Brisbane Australia how the rest of the world was going to react but really listening to people in different countries in different roles to hear what they needed at the time and then work to develop a response. And the music to my ears here is that the, the this is a constantly self-reflective learning process that in turn feeds back to program developers like our organisation that develops and trials and tests programs so that we're constantly talking about an evolving practice that is never set in concrete. Because what we're facing right now is parenting children for an uncertain future. And if you think about the challenges of climate change, the challenges of living in a digital world, the roadmaps are not quite as clear as perhaps they might have been And every successive generation has new challenges that they are confronting. But to have a process of 
program development and dissemination and implementation where there's an exchange of knowledge in a self-improving, constantly evolving and rigorously evaluated set of programs, the rigor and the evaluation doesn't stop at the point of development, does it? Because the whole implementation environment is also a research laboratory. That's right. And I think this is where collaboration is so important because working a disseminator and a program developer that can continue to work together and work together for as long as we have are so much stronger than they are independently because both groups bring such independent and unique strengths but there's so much respect between the two groups for what the other does that we can just achieve so much more and achieve much greater impact than if we were going it alone. And in terms of program developers who work in universities and do research, this is very much getting out of an ivory tower process so that we're talking about the real world of practical implementation of solutions at scale which uh, require a research process and a high degree of attentiveness to the integrity and quality of the research as well as just having good programs. Exactly. There's no point having a great program that doesn't get to families and there's no point getting a program to families that isn't going to actually help the families that it reaches. Well, Jenna, it's been great to have you participate in this uh, discussion because I think there's a bit of myth-busting that's been going on as part of this process to realise that this dynamic, fluid exchange of knowledge and learnings in a self-improving system that is constantly evolving is absolutely what's necessary when adaptations are required to handle these unique circumstances that we've confronted But it looks as though that we've been able, at least so far, to develop a response that's been helpful to the community, and that's what it's all about. It's all about the well-being of children and families. For a program that has been developed and is owned by a major public institution, such as the University of Queensland, and working in programs that are supported by the Life Course Centre, funded by the ARC, to me is a great combination of the way in which these program initiatives can evolve. So I'd just like to thank you for joining us today. Great, thank you. That's it for our latest episode of Families Under Pressure. I'm Professor Matt Sanders and I'll be interviewing more Life Course Centre investigators in coming episodes. I hope you can tune in then.